This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, one of the rarest coins in the world is hitting the auction this week. Could go for over a million dollars. Why is that? Stephen Lloyd, a specialist in Islamic coins, tells us the incredible story behind the coin and why we collect coins, what makes an ancient coin so different from the money we use today, and some great ways to learn the stories of coins, not only the value. The Great Gatsby is one of the most famous novels of all time, but who is the mastermind behind it? Well, William Hazelgrove has a new book about it, and he talks with us about F. Scott Fitzgerald, the man who wrote the book. It's a story of love, alcoholism, the roaring 20s, and it was an absolute failure until it got a second life. And how did that happen? Plus, BK and myself go head-to-head in the Halloween edition of Game Showy. This is the Shift Podcast. We're only a couple of days away from Halloween. Now, later tonight on the Shift with the Shift AV Club, it's horror movies. And Scary Shows, Hush is the movie, if you want to watch it and talk about it tonight with Steve Stebbing and Ryan O'Donnell. I'm probably going to sit on the sidelines and hush myself. I don't know, that's not my jam. I'm taking a stand with all you non-horror lovers, but we want to hear the reasons why these guys love the horror. So we're going to do that. But because Halloween is coming up, it's time to play the game. It's time for Game Showy! It's a game show on the radio, and the name is quite terrible, but it's the only thing we came up with on short notice. Here's your host, Ryan O'Donnell. Please, please hold your applause till the end, folks. Thanks, Bob. Welcome to Game Showy, friends. Whether you like horror or not, I think you're going to like what we have to offer here on the radio's best game show which is yes it's, it's called game showy now here's how this all works if you're new to game showy we have two contestants on this fair morning brendan kelly and shane hewitt hello these yes. two are going head to head in a trivia showdown and we are going to be playing for some prizes today your prize Yeesh. is that you get to escape my haunted house (laughs) yes you guys are trapped in a haunted house because we are playing haunted halloween game showy and the only way you're getting out is if you collect enough candy bars Mm. that's because we're playing for candy bars so each question is worth a piece of candy one being uh an easy question and one candy bar, and three candy bars, that's a tough question. So that's what we're playing for. Oof. Now, if you get the question right, you get to hear this lovely sound. Ooh, piece of candy. Ooh, piece of candy. Ooh, piece of candy. If you get it wrong, though, it's going to be several different spooky sounds, the monsters in the haunted house coming to get you, or a fair warning. This is what it sounds like when you get it wrong. You're dead, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead and out of this world. Oh, wow. Pretty blunt, I know. Wow. Very blunt. Wow. Yeah, but it can get spookier. Believe, yeah. believe me. <sighs> now, we have three categories to choose from for our questions. The first is the history and legends of Halloween. Mm -hmm. Second, spooky media. Mm -hmm. And Halloween in Canada. Now, we also have a very special question. A question that you may know very well because it's the text line special, which sounds like this. Ooh, 
wow, this question is hidden in the show, and one lucky contestant will stumble across it and could win two candy bars contributing to their escape from my haunted mansion if the answer is correct. This is a question that only the listeners can answer. Even if they know it, they can't tell it to me. I'm talking to Shane and Brendan. It is mm-hmm. you, the listener, who can answer the question. So, mm-hmm. 877-399-9898. Get your phones ready. If you can text it in, let me know, because I want you to send in the answer now, so when we stumble across the answer, we'll Hell know yeah. who's getting the uh, candy bars. You could be helping Brendan, or you could be helping Shane. So, Whew, come on, friends. Seven. 399-9898. When we find the question, we hear this sound. Yay! Yay! And the question is this. What Halloween radio drama caused a mass panic on October 30th, 1938? Is it Dracula, War of the Worlds, Inner Sanctum, or Poltergeist? I know. The qu- I don't care. It's not. A- <laughs> it's only for the listeners. Slow your roll, big fella. But I know it. Eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight. The number again. The question again. What Halloween drama caused mass panic on Halloween nineteen thirty eight? Dracula, War of the Worlds, Inner Sanctum, or Poltergeist? Texting your answers now. You could be the game changer later in this round of game showy. <laughs> That's right. The number again is 877-399-9898. You can help us win or lose on Game Showing. Bob? Thanks, Bob. Okay, so last time, Brendan won? No, I won. No, no. Okay. I got all the... Yeah, uh, because I gave you my... I got all the beaver tails. Yeah, so I did all the work, but you got all the prizes. Hey, hey, so I got the beaver tails. It's kind of like the shift. That's right. I was the winner, so I'm taking the title. If we're going at that logic, Shane, you do know that that means Brendan goes first, right? Yeah, I know. He's going to win. Okay, well, Brendan, you get to... all this stuff. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll get to see because, Brendan, you get first choice. Again, we're playing for candy bars, one being an easy question, three being hard. Traditions and legends, spooky media, and Halloween in Canada are our uh, categories. And, yes, lots of text messages already, which is fantastic. Keep them coming in for the text line special. Okay. where are we going? Uh, We're going to go. We'll start off uh, with traditions and the legends for one candy bar. I'm also giving Shane my candy bars. I don't eat sugar that much. Oh, thank you. Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, just kale for you, which if which is funny because if I found kale in my trick-or-treat bag, I would think that was terrifying. Here's your question, Brendan. What country does the tradition of Halloween originate from? Ooh. Is it the United States, Germany, or the United Kingdom? Well, I have a background from two of them actually no. three to be honest oh, because grandfather's lineage comes from germany but i don't believe it's them the united states never did anything original so it's definitely not <laughs> them so ryan o'donnell it is a country where you and i's family line hails from i know this it is ireland oh fiddly d and potatoes that's correct Ooh, piece oh, of candy. fiddly d and potatoes Ooh, piece of candy piece of candy that's nice. right 
it originated in Ireland, and there are many theories on the history of it, but it's generally accepted that Halloween dates back to an ancient Celtic festival known as Samhain or the Celtic New Year. and believe that the spirits of everyone who died during the year would return on the eve of Samhain to bring living bodies to possess for the following year. Ooh. Brendan's got yeah. one candy bar. He's a step closer to escaping my haunted mansion. Brendan, oh uh, well done. Thank Shane, you. you're up next. Haunted Mansion's like my worst recurring nightmare, by the way. Um, oh, I'm going with Happy to Halloween in Canada for one candy bar, please, Ryan. For one candy bar. Okay. Shane, here's your question. Mm-hmm. We're talking okay. about candy. What mm-hmm. has consistently been voted the worst Halloween candy by Canadians? Mm. Is it Kerr's Molasses Kisses, Turkish Delight, Circus Peanuts, or Candy Corn? <laughs> all of them um, are terrible <laughs> yeah they're all quite terrible um i feel like you should enunciate more on peanuts just saying circus um, peanuts thank you i'm yeah. gonna go with candy corn because it's terrible ryan it is terrible and that is the correct answer Ooh, piece of candy Ooh, piece of candy and luckily like you it. did not you found a kit kat you didn't find a candy piece of candy corn fun yes. but not fun fact 39 million pounds of that trash is made every year. And by trash, I mean candy corn. And uh, just to contribute to how disgusting it is, it was originally called chicken feed. So, Oh. Oh. Yeah. The poor, fact. Oh. poor chickens. Gross. Grody. <laughs> All right. Chickens. Gross. All right. You guys are doing well in your escape from my haunted mansion. Brandon Kelly, you're yeah. up next. All right. We're just taking her. We're, Shane and I are taking her ease. Yeah. I don't want too much of a sugar overload, it. I guess, tonight. Yeah. So I'm just going to go for spooky media for one. Ooh. Then, yeah. Oh, okay. Keep incremental. We're just incremental we a, steps forward tonight. We have uh, very steps. nice. Okay. Keeping a good pace. Saving it all for when you need to make a dash from the exit uh, when the psycho murderer gets there okay so which of these halloween films was not was not directed by tim burton legendary spooky filmmaker frankenweenie beetlejuice corpse bride or nightmare mm. before christmas frankenweenie's not a movie is it yeah, yes it is it is a movie, movie actually yeah, it's a really it great movie, a, it's a movie. <laughs> really? directed by tim burton um yeah. so yeah it's actually the nightmare before christmas that really? is no. correct yes a lot oh, of people think he directed that Ooh, piece of but candy. it was actually directed by henry Selleck. tim burton produced yep. the movie so it feels oh, like a Burton movie, yep, 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 but it is it not directed Didn't by Didn't it him. say, like, on the ad, like, Tim Burton's Night Before Christmas? Like, it said Tim it right Burton, on the poster. It's, I mean, it's basically his movie. Like, come on. But he did not direct it. He produced it. Uh, one candy bar for Brendan. We have two to one is our game right now in this lovely game of the game showy. <laughs> this is the lovely game of the game showy game. game. Showy. Well, I'm going to... I'm going to stick to the movies because I feel like I knew that one, although it was a little bit of a tricky question. I'm going to go with Spooky Media for two candy bars, right? For you. Well, congratulations, Shane, because you just stumbled across the text line special. This was a question only for the listeners. And I will actually say that uh, there is a ridiculous amount of text, like probably the most we've ever had for a text line special, which is amazing. Thank you so much. The number again is 877-399-9898. This is a question for the listeners and the listeners only. 
and it was what Halloween radio drama caused a mass panic on October 30th, 1938. The options were Dracula, War of the Worlds, Inner Sanctum, or Poltergeist. Come on, shift heads. And I will say that uh, there are almost 95% of the texts all has say the an answer, or all have the same answer. Mm. And they all guess War of the Worlds. And? And that is correct. Yes. yes. War Ooh, of the Worlds. Of Shane gets two pieces of, piece of candy. War of the Worlds, which was narrated by Orson Welles, which is probably why so many people freaked out because that yeah. man had quite a voice. Uh, it was a Halloween episode of the Mercury Theater on air, directed and narrated by Orson Welles. And yeah, people thought that there was an alien invasion going on. It's a fascinating story, which we might have more on that later this week, actually. Fun Ooh. fact. Oh, look at that, eh? Well, there you go. So, Shane, you are ahead by two candy bars, or one Thank candy you. bar, rather, to in I'm the race to the escape the haunted mansion. You didn't do anything there. That was the I, listeners. That that was was they helped you out there. You did nothing. I'm just like Donald Trump. I just said I did. Yeah. And even, I'm them. even giving you my candy, too. So like, <laughs> at this point. <laughs> even if I don't even have to do a dad tax trap, on it and take your you candy. Just eat it. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, well, there you go. Brendan yeah. Kelly, uh, I'll do a quick reminder. We are playing Game Show Trivia. And our categories for the questions are Traditions and Legends of Halloween, Spooky Media, and Halloween in Canada. And we're playing for candy bars. Brendan, where are we going? Okay, so we're in- incremental along here. Shane's got the lead here by what is it? Got by one, 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 one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Bar lead. one. Yes. So then right. I'll go for uh, a two, right? Because two. yeah, I'll go uh, Halloween in Canada for two. All righty, Brandon. We got a math question for you. Oh no! How much money will the average Canadian spend on Halloween this year, according to a survey like that came out last week from a company called Hello Safe? The question is, how much money will Canadians spend on Halloween? Is the answer more or less than $100? Um, well, let me think here. You almost always make it more. Uh, and we we have been so on you about that recently that I think that you probably specifically made this one less. If and, you're just joining us, uh, what you're hearing right now is Brendan Kelly just trying to pick apart the psychology yeah. and the bad habits of Ryan O'Donnell. He's yeah. not actually bad making a guess on Game Showy. Yeah. He's basically just anticipating whether or not uh, Ryan went more or less in this scenario. Well, I also think it's less too because it's this year. I mean, with inflation, with everything else, people well, are going to be spend spending more less money well, this year in general. More. Before I and give you the answer, more. 37% more Canadians are spending this year on 37. Halloween than last year. 37% more. Uh-oh. Does he change his answer? So your answer is less. Is that your final answer? Yeah, Brandon? my answer is still less. Oh. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're, you're right. Yes, it is Ooh, less than hundred dollars. It equates to about eighty-seven dollars per person. Canadians will also be spending an average of twenty-two on candy, twenty twelve ninety for Halloween-related activities, and ten dollars on decorations. Twelve ninety for Halloween kids. activities. Find me an activity in today's Maybe world you can spend twelve dollars and ninety cents yeah, on. I was going to say, the ticket to get into a bar on Halloween. That's, that's not even parking. Bucks. Netflix. <laughs> Yeah, I redownloaded a horror game. That's my plan for Halloween. I'm going to play a spooky game. Okay, so Brendan, you are up four candy bars to Shane's three. Shane, we we got some tough questions left on the board here. So where where are you going? 
Well, traditions and legends has kind of got me, um, kind of got me going here. I did well with the spooky media. I'm going spooky media for three, right? Three candy spooky media for three. We're going okay. deep. We are, we are going woo deep. Okay, so this is, I'm going to test your knowledge. This is a classic we're talking about here. And okay. when I made this question, I was not sure if this was way too easy or way too hard. So let's see. In It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, the classic. Who does Linus mistake for the Great Big Pumpkin? Is it Lucy, mm-hmm. Snoopy, Mm-hmm. Pig pen or mm-hmm. Charlie Brown? Well, because Brendan Kelly's going to make a joke about this being, um, you know, such an amazing historic show, and I was probably alive during it. That's um, yeah, you're pretty old, right? You're in college. That's right. <laughs> um, I happen to know that it was Snoopy, sir. That is the correct answer yes Ooh, piece of candy Ooh, piece of candy shadowy figure rising from the moonlit patch he assumes the great pumpkin has arrived but when sally sees it's snoopy she just yells at linus for make your miss out on halloween i love that movie that's a great yeah. that's a great watch you were in so your good. early 50s right Shane? that's right i was just turning 40 <laughs> yeah <laughs> in like when did that come out hey. like 1950 like i don't uh. even know jeez well, okay, so Shane, I don't know. I have no idea actually how old that Charlie Brown is. Eighties? <laughs> no, not eighties. Seventies? Yeah, it would have been early eighties, late seventies. I'd have to look it up actually. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so nice Shane questions. has six candy bars, and Brendan has four. Oh, four. The old man's beating me. Hey. Whoa. Easy. 1966, <sighs> October 27th, 1966. Yeah. Premier date of yeah. It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Nice. Okay. Which I was not alive yet. No, he's for the not. <laughs> don't believe these. Don't believe these blockheads. With no Charlie Brown. You know that's a good. Charlie I hope Brown uh, these all these uh, chocolate bar candy bars aren't too hard on your dentures there. <sighs> Man, well, my grandson brings me the best candy on Halloween. <laughs> he doesn't sound like that. <laughs> okay, Brendan. Uh, Stop making so much free. fun of me. Uh, I guess I gotta go for three, right? I have to. You gotta go to three yeah. to tie it. I'll go yes. for three uh, with Canada. Halloween. Oh, actually, Canada. no. You have to get two to tie it. You're down. You're down two. Sorry. Well, I want to so take the lead because we're running yeah. okay. up against right. the clock here. So this is where I gotta Halloween come from Canada? behind and win, like I always do. Is it Halloween in Canada or Traditions and Legends? Which one are you doing? <laughs> I'll go with Canada. Okay. What is the most common Halloween costume in Canada this year, according to Google Trends? Oh, Kanye West. Call, oh. Yeah. No. Uh, no. No. Definitely not. Uh, is it most popular costume this year? Spider-Man, Stranger Things characters, a witch, or Batman? Ooh. Um, this, I don't know what the kids are into this year. Um, Just listen to the millennial on the radio, dude. This is like mm, I give you all the hints in my nerdy segment. Mm, uh, okay, I, I'll go with the... Uh, I'm Batman. I'll go with uh, Stranger Things because the kids love Kate Bush. Yeah, that that was <laughs> That's actually my a pretty too. <laughs> Kate Bush is that 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 her song Kate, went viral. Yeah, right, this year? yeah well, it was so, the second most streamed song this year of the entire yeah. year. Yeah, um, that is incorrect. However, sorry. <laughs> you're dead. You're dead. You're dead. You're dead and out of this world. Yikes! Wow. Okay, Brendan or Shane, you have five seconds to steal the answer if you know it. Well, I'm just going to do a Ryan O'Donnell and say Batman. That's incorrect also. 
<laughs> nope, that's wrong. Given the popularity of Hocus Pocus 2 and other hit movies, The Witch, a witch, is the Get top. Get out of here. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Witch. Surprising. Wow. Yeah. What's old is like, new really? again. Oh, boring, wow. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So I guess The Witch. Okay, so both of y'all got that wrong. However, no. we got time for one more question, I think. And if Shane okay. doesn't get it right, Brennan could steal and still win. So Shane, take the. This is the last question. All right, uh, two candy bar it doesn't matter because either way, if I get it right, I win, and if I get it wrong, he wins. So I got to go for it. So I'm going for the easier of the questions because you know, brains. Brains. Two candy bars, please. Traditions and legends. It's the Halloween game right, show. You got a strategic it. old man. Shane would actually Shane just to clear your mind it would actually be a tie if if you if Brendan steals this answer. Thank you uh, for you the maths. Yeah. Uh if you want to keep hard. spirits away from your home on Halloween, what should you right. sprinkle on your doorstep? Holy water? Mm-hmm. Salt? Mm-hmm. Nothing because ghosts aren't real no. or sage. What? If I want to keep spirits out of my home on Halloween, I should sprinkle on my doorstep. Holy water, salt, nothing because ghosts aren't real. <laughs> Not true. Sage. Well, I guess it's probably holy water, I would I would say, you know. Holy water would make sense, but it's also pretty difficult to come by, and that's why that is the incorrect answer. Wrong. Oh, oh, oh. Clearly holy water Brandon. doesn't work. Brendan, you got five seconds to steal and potentially tie it. Ah, uh, well, I know this, and it's salt. It's not that is salt. correct. Yes, That's it is salt. On, what is it? Slippery Ooh, on the front step? No, burn demons. Yes. According to tradition, salt can be laid around the boundaries of a room to prevent spirits and demons from entering. This is like this is yeah. No, back in yes. my day when it was snowing and uphill both ways to school, we used salt so we didn't slip and ago. fall. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so Brendan uh, just tied it. Uh-oh. Yes. Well, we can um, hurry through one more, or we can Lord. paper, rock, scissors it. It's up to you. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, okay, let's do one more. Let's do one more. Okay. Mm-hmm. Whoever answers this first goes, okay? First. Oh I'm my God. staring at the Zoom call. I will notice, okay? This is a all tough right. one. What are we doing? Put our hands up, or are we just saying it? Lake. Yeah, just put your hand All right, just say it. Just say it. All right. Full transparency. Okay, here's your question. Mm-hmm. Algonquin tribes of the Great Lakes region of Canada believed in a terrifying monster. It can turn humans into cannibals. They're extremely tall creatures that hang out in freezing forests looking for people who might be starving enough to eat another person. What is that monster called? Is it? Oh. Nope. A Sasquatch, a Wahila, uh-huh. an Adlet, uh-huh. or a Wendigo? Mm-hmm. Harry and the Hendersons. Uh, no. I don't know. The only thing I know on that list is Sasquatch. It's not a Sasquatch. So does he get to keep guessing? Because I think he should just be eliminated (laughs) there. (laughs) (laughs) A, no, B, no, C, no. Brendan, what's your guess? Uh, The Wendigo. The Wendigo. The Wendigo was the way to go. That's correct. Uh, You had time to Google the text. A bunch of people in the text line actually uh, sent in that answer. Yes, the Wendigo, terrifying creature uh, from indigenous Canadian mythos. So Brennan oh, yeah. Kelly escapes the haunted house. However, he gave all Shane all of his candy. So Shane, you might be trapped in the haunted house, but you've got enough candy to last you probably through the weekend. So yes. I'd, I'd say it's a win for both of you. Nice. I also went camping in a Wendigo. Thanks for being here for candy. <laughs> 
for Game Showy. It's a game show on the radio. Remember, get your Sasquatch spayed or neutered. Thanks for playing. Along. <laughs> This is the Shift Podcast. We found a very interesting story that got us thinking just a little bit, and then we realized very quickly we are way out of our depth. So we needed to find some help, and we've done that. When I go online, I love to shop auctions and see what's out there. I love going into estate auctions and seeing some of the old pieces that people keep around, very well cared for. And again and again and again, I see coins come up. A lot of them are... Canadian coins, Canadian notes from the 70s, stuff like that. I don't know how to track this stuff. I don't know what matters, what doesn't matter. I don't know what's good, what's not good. I think it's cool to see a $2 bill again. Haven't seen one of those in a long time. But aside from that, when people show up at these auctions, they know a lot. They know exactly what they're going for. They know exactly what they can get for it. If they want to put it away, flip it, what do they want to do? And I don't mean flip the coin, I mean flip it for value. <laughs> and so this is where we've reached out and I've connected with a man who is in London, England. His name's Stephen Lloyd. Now, Stephen, quickly put, is, you know, coin guy, uh, particularly Islamic coins. But the organization that Stephen works for is called the Classical Numismatic Group. And they have a big, actually, coin auction coming up here, which is really cool. First one in a long time. We'll ask Stephen about that. But... It's coins from around the world, not only these ones. The story was a new coin, a very, very old coin that's been discovered. And this just got me curious as to what are these things worth? And is it the value, the cash value that matters? Stephen, thanks for being here. Not at all. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. So um, do you always keep coins jingling in your pocket when you walk just out of respect for your industry? Or I mean, this whole debit using credit card things must really suck for you. You know what? That's an interesting question, because if you go into a museum, you are going to have coins in your pocket. And if you don't have coins in the pocket, and particularly with the pandemic, we will be much more careful about handing changeover. And we do an awful lot more contactless now or with bank cards. But still, I still have change in my pocket, and a lot of people do. So if you visit a museum or a gallery or anything like that, you don't have paintings with you, but you have coins with you. And the objects that my company sells are the tangible bits of history that are woven into people's everyday lives. And so, yes, some of them can be enormously valuable. Some of them have great stories to tell, but they also have that connection with all of us. We all spend money in some shape or form, whether it's by a bank card or by handing over small round pieces of metal. And it's that connection, which I find every day, a very, very exciting thing to be doing. So which part of it really gets you, Stephen? Because you have usually symbolism on the coin. There's usually some sort of, um, you know, it could be spiritual, it could be political symbolism of the time that has been represented and stamped into a coin for whatever reason. Then there's the fact that that coin has traveled from my pocket to your pocket all around the world on a ship. Who knows where it went? And then there's the fact of the values of the currencies back in the day and then the cash value of it today. Which part of it really gets you? All of it, really. But for me personally, it's the history of the object and the story which it tells. And coins are tiny little historical documents. And every coin which you have that you carry around with you has various different things on it. It tells you information about the country 
or the individual or the king or the government who issued it. It tells you what its spending power is. There's going to be some kind of an image, whether that's um, in our country, it's currently our new king, King Charles III. There's a lot of excitement here because we now have a new portrait on the coinage for the first time in well over 60 years. So you have those aspects too. But certainly on Canadian coins, you have um, symbols on the other side of the coin, which are very specific to Canada. And we handle these things all the time. We notice them, we glance at them. We don't necessarily think in greater depth and in greater detail about exactly what the significance of those images represents. But with the much older coins, which tend to be what my company sells, then you are dealing with things which could act as tiny little messengers. They could be used for propaganda. They could be used to spread any kind of message that a central authority wanted to send out, whether that's a political message, it can be an economic message, it can be a religious or a spiritual message. But these are objects which went out into the world, circulated, and were seen by millions and millions and millions of people, and particularly at a time when people may or not have been literate or where people didn't necessarily have access to other forms of media, these were ways that you could get information out to a mass of people. And that, and the way that they've been used historically for that is really what fascinates me in particular. You know what, you just got me thinking as you said that, Stephen, um, I mean, you being a coin guy, I, I'm so far out of my depth, right? Like this is not, I find it fascinating, but I know nothing about it. And to me, I guess if you found a bag of coins, you know, someone's digging through, I don't know, their walls and they found Mm -hmm. a bag of coins from back in the day and they come to you and they say, hey, look at this. Not only the coins, but the combinations of coins from different places and the different eras that could be inside that bag of coins, because that could span 50 years, even more. That is exactly right. And my grandfather served in the armed forces during World War II. And after he returned home to where my mother was then only aged four or five, he had picked up various coins on his travels. And I still have that little group. The coins have no great monetary value. They are not rare coins, but they're things which reflect where he went. And so you have got things that reflect when he was campaigning and saw service in Europe, where he saw service in the Far East. And they are, they tell, if you like, the story of his travels and his life. And he brought them home and they were kept. So they have that personal value to me. But also you can chronicle where he went by the nature of the coins that he brought back. And we still do this. If you go on vacation somewhere, you have to change currency. And chances are that you're going to end up getting some coins from whichever country you're going. And because the coins tend not to be worth so much, you can change the notes or the bills back. It's harder to do that with the coins. So lots of people have holiday change. And okay, fine, it may not be worth a very great deal, but that is still something which reflects where you have gone and what you have done. Coins tell all sorts of stories, and you're quite right that it's the the assemblage. If you have that group of coins together, how did that happen? Was somebody traveling by sea? What can we tell about where these people went? And if you dig up a hoard of coins today, academics can study that, and they can work out where they've come from. They can deduce trade routes. They can deduce who was what, who was doing what when. There is mm. a vast amount of information that you can get from these things. Would you recommend when we go on vacation? I mean, I was in Ireland in in June and my first visit to Ireland. So I have a few coins, right? They're Euros coins and stuff like that, but I have a few coins and, and I mean, I've, I think in my pocket, I ended up with like a Canadian loonie, 
you know, a mm-hmm. couple of, a couple of coins. And it was new to me, the whole, the currency of dealing with, you know, euros and pounds and all those things. And so just do, what do I do? Just put them in a little bag and put them away somewhere. Those six coins that I had left over and maybe write a little note and just put Dublin 2022 and, and throw that away and save the story for later. I think that's a really nice thing to do because they then, they don't take up much space. They don't decay. They don't eat anything and they can just sit quietly on one side. And then over time you end up with that and your family can preserve that too. But it's just such an easy, natural thing to do. These are things that we carry around with us. Coins coins are part of your everyday life. And this was part of your holiday. You've brought it back. You keep them. That's neat. I think that's great. I've never thought of that before. What a great way to do that, right? And tell the stories of of the places you go. And I see so many people, they buy these coin sets and they're brand new, perfectly wrapped, and they put them away in their safety deposit box or whatever. And that's great. I think that's fine. But to me, it's the ugly ones. You know, I like the I like the beat up ones that have a story. I mean, you as a coin guy, is it is it the I mean, obviously the better condition, the better, but you know, these perfectly minted, saved coins from 40 years ago. I mean, that's all pretty and stuff. But these ugly old ones, this is, to me, is the cool stuff. What do you see? I think you have both. I think if you are looking at the aesthetics, and coins have been made for more than two and a half thousand years, and you have had some of the finest artists who have been involved with designing them. Now, if you get a really choice, beautiful, fresh, good as the day as it was made, example, that has an aesthetic beauty in its own right. But in terms of the history and what the coin has seen and what the coin can tell us, yes, you're right. It can often be a much more worn or even a damaged coin, which has more to, um, more to tell you. Um, there's one example of that. In the um, If you go back a couple of hundred years, when you would occasionally be transported into Australia, if you were found convicted of something like stealing a sheep or basically being poor and desperate, you got transported to Australia. And if you were leaving a loved one behind, you would sometimes engrave a coin with your name and the date and the details of your passage. And you could leave that with your sweetheart as a love token and hope that you would eventually come back to see them. Mm. Now, the coin itself, of course, is defaced by that. And if you want an absolutely beautiful specimen of that particular coin, that's not going to be the one for you. But if you actually want to study that person's history and find out who this individual was and what crime it was they were meant to have committed and why they went to Australia and what happened to their life after that, you have all of that social history that goes with it too. So often it's not the obviously beautiful ones that you can necessarily get the most out of. It can be. And yes, coin collectors like to have the most perfect specimen they possibly can because they're the most beautiful. I mean, if if you have a fabulous painting on your wall, you want it to be intact and you don't want it to be necessarily cut and damaged. But there is a sense in which coins were made to be used and things which reflect how they were used and the circumstances of their use have their own interest too. You get, I mean, I'm a specialist for medieval Islamic coins and you get coins which are a thousand years old where a money changer has made little secret marks on them to show that they've tested them and that they're made of good gold and that they aren't actually just plated and somebody hasn't put copper in the middle. You get some which have little um, inscriptions on them to say that these were for Allah and these are ones which were probably went into for 
they had a religious significance. They were either given um, as arms to the poor or for something like that. So you have these little notes and they don't enhance necessarily the commercial value of the coin, but the historical interest is considerable. And that's very much part of it. Uh, it is interesting, that, of course, how times have changed where even copper is too valuable. Um, but uh, from back yeah. in the day. Uh, so when, when we talk about these things, it brings me to one of my philosophical writings in my work, which is knowledge is useless until we share it, right? We, a lot of philosophers have talked about knowledge, 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 and acquiring knowledge and having knowledge and all these things. And I, I, I take it a, a never, next level exception to that is that all of this knowledge is completely useless. If we take it with us, it becomes extremely valuable when we share it. And money has always been the same. I say to my kids all the time about money, like money is actually, aside from maybe some reassurance that you got some of it in the bank, but it's actually not even money anymore. But aside from the reassurance, money's actually completely useless until we share it. And we can see how the crossover comes into the storytelling. Somebody else wants what I have. What kind of value do they put on that? And that's where we start to find the definition of value. It's magical. And if we just have to, if we just take a moment to understand that all of these things really sitting here are useless. If nobody else knows about them, nobody else wants them. There's no story to tell. But now then it skyrockets when we start to share it. And that as humanity is where I get really connected to what's going on. You guys with your auction coming up this week with classical numismatic group, you have some pretty special, super old Islamic coins coming up that are, are mega old. Can you tell me about those? Yes, we have got a number of, I mean, we've got 330 individual coins in the auction. And those cover the period from the very, very earliest period of Islam. So in Christian terms, you're talking around 650, 660 AD. And you go all the way through to the early 20th century. So they do span the entire gamut of Islamic history. And you have a wide range of metals, you have a wide range of coin denominations, you have a wide range of types. But they all, to a greater or lesser extent, these all have historical significance. The most special and most exciting coin that we have this time is a coin that was struck around 710 AD. It's a gold dinar. It weighs a little over four grams, and it's pretty much 23 karat gold. They were very, very fussy at that stage about getting the gold as good as it possibly could be, and they had fabulous quality control. They, the, the weight of a dinar at that stage was almost exactly 4.25 grams. And if you test them nowadays, they are within 0 0.003 grams of that. Really? They were incredibly, yeah. These coins had a religious significance. There is a verse in the Quran that tells you that when you pay people, you have to pay them fair weight and good measure. And the idea that when you hand somebody a coin, it has to be of correct weight, and of fine gold is very much part of the history of Islamic coinage. They made a real effort to get the gold as good as it could be, and they made a real effort to get the weight as consistent and as right as it possibly could. But what's so exciting about this particular coin is that it has two extra lines of inscription on it. Islamic coins at this period don't have pictures. There is an avoidance in Islamic art of depicting living things. So you just have this beautiful, very clear calligraphy. A lot of it is religious inscriptions, which carry the message of Islam throughout the world. But on this particular coin, you have these two extra lines 
that read Ma'din Amir al-Mu'minin, which translates as the mine of the commander of the believers. Now, the commander of the believers was the title of the caliph. That's the ruler of the Islamic world at the time. And Ma'din means a mine. And it can either mean metaphorically, like someone's a mine of information, or, and we think this is what it means in this case, we don't know for certain, there's still so much work to be done on this, that it actually means a physical place where you dig or out of the ground. Now, what scholars think, although these coins are incredibly rare, there aren't enough of them really to study consistently and we're still very much learning with this. But we think that on this coin, it indicates where the gold itself came from, mm. which was a gold mine in Arabia, which belonged to the caliph himself, that these coins were made from gold from his personal resources. And we know that around the time that these coins were made, he was visiting the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. And it's written in the contemporary histories of the time that he gave out gifts during his stay there. And what we speculate is that if he's giving out gifts, these will be his personal gifts. This isn't like from a state treasury. This is his personal things. So if this is gold from his personal mine that he's taken to the mint to have struck into coins, which people could do back in those days, if you had scrap gold, you could take it to the mint and you could get that converted into coinage. So we speculate that to show that he isn't misusing state funds, this is a personal gift from him, that he had this small number of special coins struck and that they could actually be have been presented when he was visiting Mecca or Medina. Now, a lot of that is difficult to prove for certain, but you have some questions like, why are these coins so incredibly rare? They only struck these coins with this special legend for just three or four years. Now, those are the three or four years where this particular caliph is doing an awful lot in Medina and Mecca. He's rebuilding mosques. He's doing a lot of public work. He's spending a lot of time there trying to um, really put his own mark on things. He's trying to suppress um, rebellions. He's trying to make sure that everybody's right behind him. He's really doing a big hearts and minds mission there. And what better way to do that than to give out your own personal coins from your own personal gold? If you are somebody who gets a gift like this from the Caliph, you are somebody who matters, and that's a big deal to you. And that's where, across more than 1,200, 1,300, 1,400 years of history, you actually have a small gold tangible reminder of these events where the ruler of the Islamic world is worried about rebellions in the holiest cities of Islam and is going there to deal with it. And we have reason to think these coins could have been a part of that process. Wow. I mean, talk about legacy, right? Legacy and having your name on a library is not that. Um, next level. So best uh, best guess on how, how, what is the estimation of the number of these coins that could be out there? Not very many. Very few indeed. And there are believed to be two known from this year. It's, it's year 93. That's in the Islamic calendar. So that's about 711, 712 for the Christian one. There are three or four known dated 92, three or four dated 91, none from 90, and a unique one dated 89. So you are looking at wow. a dozen at most, but very possibly fewer. 
And we know that they can't instruct very many of these because the dyes that were used to make them survived for anything up to three or four years. Now, if you think about how you used to strike a coin back in the old days, you didn't have the kind of machinery that we have nowadays. You had a warm, flat bit of metal, which went on one metal die. You put another metal die on top of it. Somebody held that with tongs and a big, strong guy with a mallet smashed it down to make the impression. It was as straightforward as that. Now, if you think of the force that happens, those dies break after a while. With these coins, we know that at least one of the dies used for this one survived two years. We, have, we know that other coins in these series, the dies survived three or four. And if you have a die that is surviving that level of punishment with a big, strong guy smashing it with a mallet all the time, you, they would routinely get through dozens of dies in a year if you're striking regular coins. If you've got something that's lasting this long, they are keeping these dies. They're a special coinage. They're not striking many of them. And that's why the die can survive for as long as it could. So they're exceptionally rare today. And it's extremely unlikely that they were ever made in great numbers. So those, I guess every die, because of technology, would be slightly different in itself, right? So that one breaks. Now the next one is not perfectly identical. That's exactly right. All of these dies were hand engraved. Wow. And you can identify individual calligraphic styles, you can match them. And that's how we can tell that the special die with the inscription that says the mine of the commander of the faithful was used not merely for this year, but in other years also. So we know that somebody looked after this die. They didn't just decide, okay, that was last year's, we'll trash it, we'll melt it down. They kept it. It was used over a period of time. You've got a planned coinage. And we also know that it must have been used very sparingly. You can tell, you can spot the signs of wear as a die gradually degrades through use hmm. because the impression it gives on a coin weakens. Occasionally, they try to repair a die. Occasionally, a die cracks. But with this, you've got a nice fresh impression from a nice fresh die, even though that die is at least two years old. And you are dealing with an extremely small issue of coins. And that all fits with the hypothesis that you're looking at something which is made in small numbers for a very special, very specific occasion. That's 1500 years ago. Like that's fascinating to me. Holy cow. Yep. So, okay. So you have 300 plus coins coming up in the auction this particular week. Um, this one, how much? What's the dollars? <laughs> uh, well, we are putting an estimate on it of three quarters of a million dollars. Wow. And if you're going to ask why on earth do you think it's worth $750,000? The best answer I can give you is that the nearest comparable coin that we can find, which has similar legends, but was struck four years earlier, mm -hmm. year um, 89. That's the earliest of that, this type. This is the latest of this type. That coin came up at auction in London 10 years ago, and that made 750,000 pounds right. back then. So with this one, it's one we think of two known. It's not quite unique. We think it's one of two. So bearing in mind that we've moved 10 years on, we think the $750,000 is a good guide price for this. But on the day, who knows? It's a fabulous thing. It's a really exciting thing to have. And if two collectors want it and they fight for it, who knows where the price is going to end up. Okay, when auctions happen, Stephen, this is what you do. You're, the company uh, is auction company. You guys do coins. Um, like... I would like to see the look on your face because you've been around this for a long time. This is your expertise. But when the auctions go to those wild places and even some of the most experienced auctioneers will be like, oh my, 
this this is going right i mean what an exciting uh, piece of your job it's a lot of fun and i'm calling the auction on thursday i'll be the guy standing up there at the lectern with the gavel and that's something which i enjoy doing now obviously with the pandemic and with travel restrictions an awful lot of auctions moved online mm-hmm. for obvious reasons and auctions are something which work really well online you can have fabulous auction software we have lots of people who participate from throughout the world we have our we have auction software which we use and lots of people like the convenience of sitting at home with their feet up and bidding from wherever they happen to be but for me personally there is also very much a community of people who have an interest in these things we know each other and for me one of the nicest things about thursday is that clients and friends who i haven't seen for two or three years can now come to london and i can actually be in the same room with them and you can actually share that space and that's when you really get the atmosphere where two people on telephones take 10 minutes to fight it out for something really amazing and you can hear a pin drop and everyone's just listening and everyone's following it and everybody contributes to the atmosphere that makes all of that happen and there is for all the practicality and the convenience it's wonderful that you can do all this online there is nothing quite like being in the sale room and being part of that shared experience the drama it's so exciting exactly. oh i love it okay cool oh now uh, steven uh, steven lloyd you are an expert in the islamic coins and all those is there one coin that you have in love or that you wish you dream for is there one steven lloyd coin that for you is the one that you would love to be able to just that's yours for me do you mean for me to own personally, personally or I think, for yeah. me to call up at auction I think for you for well, either me, way I guess whichever way it goes for in your heart whatever answer comes up but I mean I did intend personally For me personally I because I sell these to other people for a living you have to be a little bit careful as to what you collect and what the extent to which you collect personally because you can end up fighting with the people who you're also trying to serve we all have our favorites there is one coin which one day i would love to present for auction and that's another islamic gold coin which is struck about um 15 20 years before this one and that is one which actually depicts the caliph himself on a gold coin wearing full arab dress and with his hand on a sword and that is the earliest depiction of a living caliph you get and um, it's an amazing thing i have only ever seen one authentic specimen in the 26 years i've been doing this and if there was one coin that i would love to work on as a project to research to write up and just to see on my desk that would probably be it it's such such an amazing moment where you realize that in a in a culture where you don't often have actual images of how people looked but on these things we do and this is a gold object and it's this depiction of this individual and there is just something about the power of that image across the years so if there's one coin that one day i would love to have to work on and could spend many many happy hours researching and writing up 
that would be the one for me, I think. Is that the magic as the auctioneer to be able to tell the story of what this really means? Because, I mean, you could say, hey, it's a coin. It was two bucks back in the day. That doesn't really sell it. It's all about explaining to somebody, like you said earlier, why is this thing valuable? And there are all sorts of very practical reasons, and that's market demand, it's the quality, it's the rarity, it's establishing what these things historically have sold for. There are all the very practical reasons as to why is this worth $1,500 and why is this worth $500. But actually, deep down, there has to be something a little bit more than that. And there has to be, this is the earliest gold coin that has come from anywhere in Saudi Arabia, and that it's connected to the pilgrimage um, with people going to perform that. It's things that really cross the years and the history. And for all that, when you work in my line of business, of course, the value of the objects is important because that's how I put bread on the table for my family. But you cannot forget that you are dealing with things that are well over a thousand years old mm. in many cases and that come from these wonderful places and that have so much history and such a story to tell them. And for me, one of the pleasures of being a coin collector is that maybe in the winter when it's a nasty cold day outside, you can just spend half an hour looking at something new which you've bought and you've thought, you know what, I don't actually know where the place that this coin was made actually is, and I don't know enough about the guy who issued it. And you just spend half an hour answering those questions to yourself. And that's where, because you own it, and it's a tangible thing, it prompts you to think a little bit more about the world and about its history and about how people lived back then, their parts of social history, their parts of political history. And that's the fun of it. It's wonderful if these things sell for a great deal of money. And it's wonderful if the rare, if you have got a fabulous and the finest known, there's, this, these are all great ways to collect. There's nothing wrong with it. But for me, there is just something about thinking, this is a coin of Julius Caesar. This is a coin of this caliph. This is a coin of Alexander the Great. And that's when you think, you know what, I'm now going to spend half an hour learning a little more about Alexander the Great and that coin that you bought and you paid some of the money that you've earned for has helped enrich your knowledge and help it. That's the way that these things touch people, I think. That's beautiful. It's so enlightening. I love this. It makes me want to learn more about it. I I'm really appreciate you being so generous with your time. Uh, can you please reach out and let us know how the auction goes? I'm curious to see some of the outcomes. Are you allowed to publish those publicly? We absolutely are. The auction, the outcome of the sale will well, we'll know on Thursday afternoon. And that's the other thing. You always have the pre-auction nerves because you have some people who bid in advance of the sale, but you have plenty of people who turn up and you never quite know what's going to happen. Right. So there is always going to be that, how's it all going to go? But yes, after that, the auction results are posted publicly. Um, you're going to have to give us a day or two just to get them online. But I can certainly touch base with you after the sale, and I can let you know so how it's good. all gone. And I'd be delighted to do that. He's a specialist in Islamic coins at Classical Numismatic Group. The uh, auction's coming up later in the week. 1,500 years old. Like, this is amazing stuff. Stephen Lloyd, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure. This is The Shift Podcast. Oh, we get to bring back a friend of the shift to chat about new writings, new musings, and new uh, research. Lots of research. The one thing I've learned about William, 
There's a lot of research that goes on. You might remember William. He came on. He chatted with us about his writing about the Titanic and all that inside information and all the things that we chatted about it was so fascinating. And um, and now we're we're kind of in the same era. We're going fast forward just a little bit in time to well, it was this beautiful era post war where a lot of things changed, but things also got filthy. <laughs> And they, at the time, it was a fun filthy, but it, things got filthy. Uh, William Hazelgrove, author, is here. William, it's great to see you. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, you've got some. You got some new writing. Hey, The Great Gatsby. We fast forward to, uh, isn't it? It's based on about 1922, but at the same time, uh, it was originally written in 1925. What drew you to look into this book? Um, you know, I actually wrote a biography on Dickens. And this woman wrote this great biography about how he wrote the Christmas Carol. And so I got really intrigued about that. And I, my thought was, you know, is there another great book that we all know with a story behind it that we don't know? And so I came to The Great Gatsby, and that's how I came up with, you know, the book, Writing Gatsby, the real story of the writing of the greatest American novel. Yeah. So, I mean, you have me, you have me on the edge of my seat, William. Uh, what is, <laughs> yes. what is the real, well, let's well, talk about, yeah. let's talk about the, let's talk about the, the fiction story first and the basis of the fiction story, because not everybody knows sure. the great Gatsby and some people might only remember it from a long time ago in school kind of thing. So what is the basis, the basics of the great Gatsby? Okay. Uh, the great Gatsby is actually this bootlegger on Long Island, uh, during the roaring twenties who basically has, this dream of getting this golden girl, Daisy Buchanan, who's this very wealthy woman and has married Tom Buchanan. Uh, so he does, they have an affair and then Tom Buchanan uh, finds out about the affair. And then through a series of, of coincidences, uh, Gatsby's murdered by a man who, who is the husband of a woman that Tom Buchanan's having an affair with named Murder Wilson. So, so, you know, this little tawdry tale of a bootlegger becomes really the summation of the American dream. And and really the story and the way that becomes that is the basis of writing Gatsby. Now, at this era, we've seen the Titanic. We've seen this massive migration to the United States, this chase the dream, the American dream. Um, and not to mention the war was a lot closer over in England, right? So that made things change too. Then capitalism, all of the growth, all of the things, the Spanish flu had sort of, um, you know, that was kind of finished in the background right and everybody was like this is amazing we're going to i'm gonna i'm gonna make it all happen now it turned into uh you know sort of the flapper dance and the flapper style the the jazz really took over uh musicians became massive celebrities and uh the bars I mean, the mobsters in the bars took over in a massive right. way, which made for this sort of hedonistic uh, love affair nightlife thing for the first time that we'd ever seen. And and this is really the core of the era when this all started. That's right. And so Fitzgerald is there uh, for this. He, he publishes a novel in 1920 that becomes a, an instant bestseller called This Side of Paradise. He marries Zelda, a Southern belle. So here's what's fascinating. They are on the cusp of what is really going to become this incredible decade of just 
and the ultimate party, but also there's no youth culture up to now. So now they are really the first sort of pilgrims, if you will, of this emerging youth culture. Because in America, after the Civil War, people started to migrate to the city. So Manhattan is the first sort of test tube of this. And, and Fitzgerald has these lavish parties, and he, you know, all these people from New York come out to them. And so, you know, he's sort of the toast of the town, and so he's able to take in all of this. He's written two books uh, up to now, and he wants to get a third going, but he can't get going he, because of all these parties. And, and let's get it out there, Fitzgerald's an alcoholic. And, and so he decides in 1924 he's going to go to Europe, the south of France, to the Riviera, he stakes himself about $7,000 to go write his epic third novel. It's a fair chunk of change back then. Oh, yeah. No, it was. And, you know, he, he made his money not by his novels. But at this time, there's these things called the Slicks, which was the Saturday Evening Post mostly. And you could write a short story for them as a writer and get $4,000 for it. So he was making incredible money off these these stories, but they were a grind. He had to grind them out. And at the end, he ended up writing two or 300 of them. And he always wanted to get to his novels. And so he finally gets some money ahead. This Gerald never, ever uh, got ahead of his money, even though he made incredible money. This is America's preeminent author. He never, ever lived in a home. Really? He always rented hotels, even as a boy, right? And, and really, Gatsby begins there in St. Paul, Minnesota. Fitzgerald... Uh, his father lost his job. His mother was a McQuillan who inherited money, um, but not enough, really. And yet they lived among the rich on Summit Avenue. So he was always the poor boy looking in the keyhole to the rich. Right. And this is very much what will inform Gatsby. This, and, and Fitzgerald's writing is all this way of being the outsider and, and staring into this very privileged class. Now, did he... Are there is there evidence of that in this in the storyline of the Great Gatsby? Because when you look at the elements or chapters of the book, you do see things like the American Dream. You've got the um, the playmate. You've got the poor rich girls don't marry poor boys. Like you've got all of these sort of elements that you're talking about in his life that seem to start to jumping off the cliff. I mean, you start to see these um, evidence of this. The, the real life that you're talking about come into some of the shell structure of this book. Oh, very much. That's what I discovered is that really Gatsby is Fitzgerald's life. He is the American dream. He, he wanted Zelda badly. She would not marry him initially because he had no money. He goes to New York. He gets his book published. He goes back to Montgomery and asks her to marry him. She says, yes, and this is where you get that whole, you can't repeat the past, of course you can, old sport, which is in Gatsby, because <laughs> Fitzgerald believes he can recreate this very intense romance he had with his wife. And, and, and he has become famous, and he has a certain amount of money. So now he is, he's basically, all this gets mirrored in Gatsby. So, so what happens to Fitzgerald when he goes to the Riviera? Well, Zelda, who's sort of a wild child, um, Fitzgerald's writing. She has to occupy herself. She she meets this uh, Eduardo Jozan, this very handsome uh, aviator, and she starts spending time with him while Fitzgerald's writing, and she has an affair. Okay, this affair, while Fitzgerald's writing, bangs into the novel because at one point the novel's going one way. Well, 
Zelda then confronts Fitzgerald and says, hey, I want a divorce. Mm-hmm. I want a divorce. And he says, no. No, you can't have a divorce. And in fact, he locks her in her room at this point. And this gets transmuted into the novel between Daisy and Gatsby. Right. Uh, this confrontation that occurs at the Palazzo Hotel, a famous confrontation where Gatsby is sort of unrobed, if you will, you know, Tom Buchanan says, you, you're nothing but a bootlegger. Right. You know, you have this money, but you're, you're not like us, which is a huge theme in Gatsby, uh, this American concept that we can be anything we want. We can, we can go from the working class up. Because Gatsby was a poor boy from Minnesota, you know, his farmer. He just created this persona, which is very American, right, is, is that you can create this other person. You can become somebody else. No social security numbers. No identity problems. If you want to be somebody else, you can be it. So really, you're right on. Fitzgerald's life is being transmuted into Gatsby. And also, Zelda is the living personification of a character for him. He created the flapper, and that's Zelda. So, but in this, um, I, you know, there's a couple of threads that I want to just touch on. Um, sure. this is, th- as you describe this, we've seen in many other shows and I've read in many other books, you know, infidelity as being one of those things that, you know, it happened, but we don't talk about it and you're going to love me in the street and, and nobody will know and, and put on the good game face, right? Fake it till you make it type scenario. We've sure. seen that in other shows and at this time in life, you know, infidelity was still, I mean, clearly it was happening. I mean, it's been going on forever, but this is where it started to change into sort of the sexual revolution a little bit about people going out and getting theirs. And I just wanted to add the layer of the mobsters. You talked about the putting on the mask and becoming any character that you want to become. That's fundamentally what mobsters did. They basically were like, I'm going to be the tough guy. Watch me play the tough guy. And so this was really percolating in all aspects of life at this this very moment and it started to just all come together with alcohol at nighttime yeah well and you know you bring up alcohol again prohibition's interesting because it was supposed to stop people from drinking but what did it do before prohibition men got together with men and drank after work in a saloon after prohibition men and women went out to a speakeasy there was sex there was jazz it's the beginning of partying as we know it the upshot was People drank more than ever before. And as Fitzgerald said, it began the greatest party ever. Now, saying that, what your listeners probably don't know is that when The Great Gatsby came out, all right, this was Fitzgerald's big hope. He would be financially set from this, critically set. Gatsby crashed. 1925, it's published. The book just sales-wise crashes. Uh Reviews are mixed. A lot of reviewers went after them. Why? Well, first of all, it's a very short book. Second of all, it's tawdry. It's, there's murder. There's adultery. It's his bootlegger. Um, people didn't know what to make of it. And, you know, there was no major women characters, which were very big for readers. And so this book vanishes. In fact, by Christmas, you can't find it. So this, this does not pan out for Fitzgerald in any way. So when Fitzgerald dies in 1940, his last royalty check is for $5. And Gatsby ceases to exist. His obituaries, they don't even mention it. Uh, there's a couple of stacks of Gatsby in the Scribner warehouses. So the question is, how did this book come back? And that's a fascinating story because what happened is in World War II, they had what's called ASEs, and they're Armed Services Editions, little paperbacks they sent to all the GIs during World War II. 
Well, they sent 250,000 of these ASEs to the GIs. They, they read it, and then they come back to America at the end of the war, become teachers, journalists, librarians, and start to talk about this little book called The Great Gatsby, about this bootlegger on Long Island, and this guy Fitzgerald was a pretty good writer. That's how Gatsby starts to come back. Really? So it was actually yeah. an, an oops. Do you think it failed because uh, because he wrote from that small urban bubble that while it was very popular and most of the country, most of the continent was still the rural people that yeah. wouldn't get the debauchery that was happening in the cities at nighttime? Absolutely. I mean, you hit it right on. He was writing ahead of his time. He was writing what we would know as mass culture, celebrity culture. Um, but you're right, it was teeny then. Also, also, he elevated his style. The reason you can't make Gatsby into a good movie is because his prose is so layered. It's so elegant. It's so packed up that it doesn't really transfer well. Well, he actually wrote above his readership. So these people are reading this and they're like, what, what is this? Yeah. This is, you know, I, I don't quite get this. And so time passes and this little literary bobble that, by the way, this is during Hemingway's time. So Hemingway's just this monster author and Fitzgerald is virtually forgotten. This little literary bobble starts to come out. And in the forties and the fifties, there's a renaissance to the point today where it sold 50 million copies. 500,000 a year. So did that, what did, um, did our education of the everybody start to catch up to where he was writing so people could actually understand the book? And, um, did, uh, well, might as well ask the question. Did our level of comfort with just debauchery become normalized? And we were like, sure, drunken sex at bars. This all makes sense now. Yeah. I think, I think those two things happen. And also too, we got enough distance where, you know, Fitzgerald froze this little tale, and, you know, it's that famous line at the end, so we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. And what that means is this, is that in America, we are forever bewildered in this urban landscape we've created. Why? Because we came from this country of small towns. Democracy began in small towns all over America. One reason democracy caught in America was because we were protected by those oceans. Well, we're forever looking back over our shoulder at those small town values. So we beat on boats against cornback, boats against the current born back ceaselessly into the past. So as we, you know, reach further, we're always sort of haunted by what's past. And Fitzgerald nailed that. He nailed the underside of the American dream, which has this, this, this sort of darkness that runs under of getting the golden girl of getting, becoming rich and famous, you know, we see this all the time now played out in real time with celebrities and people where we're like, wow, they have everything. Why did they OD? You know, why did they, why did these bad things happen to them? Well, because, you know, it's a bit of a canard. It's, it's, it's a red herring. You, that's not really the answer to happiness. So he, he saw that in the American dream in this urban landscape of this early urban landscape of New York. Because it was happening to him that he saw yes. that it was unfold, like it was unraveling it, it right in front of him. Exactly. Yeah. He, he, he wrote in real time. It happened him because after Gatsby, his marriage was over. Yeah. After 1925, Zelda didn't leave him, but you know, she had no life after that. 
Uh, she had a nervous breakdown in 1930. She was inst institutionalized all the way up to her death after that. He had to go to Hollywood to write for a while. Again, he was drinking. And when, again, he, he died in, he was 44. Mm -hmm. He died in 1940. And, and the obituaries didn't even mention that. That's amazing. Gatsby. Well, they didn't even mention it. Do we, like, do we see that this is, um, you know, how this unfolds in his life. I mean, it, it was unraveling in front of him and it, the way you describe it with making a bunch of money, it almost seems like it didn't matter what you did. Um, call it maybe a metaphor for America, a metaphor for capitalism. You could do whatever you want. There was never enough money. There was always human nature. It didn't matter what you did. There was more to what was going on than just dollars and status that maybe it led into the fact that, you know, the humanity part still needs to be there or else it all unravels anyway. Was that evident? Absolutely. I mean, um, what Fitzgerald nailed was that the American dream is, is not just a monetary dream, although many times it's it's thrown that way. It's only a cultural dream. It's being able to have time with your kids, have a, a, a happy life, have a, a little bit of leisure time, have you know some pleasure in your work. It's really more of a cultural dream but but it's been sold to people as a materialistic dream mm -hmm. and Fitzgerald was on to this because this is what he went after this is you know he did become rich and famous he did get the golden girl but he lost it all too and as did Gatsby you know there's a scene when Gatsby is shot by um, Myrtle Wilson's husband and he dies in his pool and there's a great line in Gatsby where he says Gatsby must have that moment looked up and realized how grotesque a rose is or how grotesque the light is on the water because he had lost the dream that gives color to life. He lost illusion, if you will. And, and this is what also Fitzgerald lost. So, so it's very much about this, you know, losing that luster uh, to life, you know, and then, and then seeing, seeing what it was. So, again, it's, it's a very bittersweet tale but it nails the American dream. And by the way, Fitzgerald, in the last year of his life, went looking for his book in bookstores with a woman named Sheila Graham. And nobody had it. And, and he said, do you have any demand for this F. Scott Fitzgerald? And they're like, no, wow. not at all. Well, you said something that really stays with me, William. The book is called Writing Gatsby. William Hazelgrove is our guest, a friend of The Shift. I do love our conversations. And here's where you've inspired me in this. You said that he lost the illusion and yet um, such tragedy in perhaps just finding the truth. Yes, absolutely. That's absolutely true. I love yeah, it. I mean, yeah, that's, and, that's, and that's, really what, that's really what Gatsby is all about. And when you, you strip it down and, you know, when you see, if your listeners see the movie, see the 2013 film, that's the better one. But that's really what it is. Thanks for cool. being here. Appreciate absolutely. it. Absolutely. Thanks. All right. Thank you for having me. Take care, brother. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Author William Hazelgrove here. It's The Shift, writing Gatsby. Fascinating look, and it's hard to believe 100 years ago. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show, and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.